and welcome to Vertiguys. I'm Sean. And I'm Eric. And we're the Vertiguys. Checking out the dark side of DC. We're going to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. Yeah, and today we are dealing with Hellblazer issues 34 through 36, which form kind of the first story arc of the ongoing story arc that's going to carry us the rest of the way through Jamie Delano's run, if story arc is a word you want to use. Yeah, they're sort of serial. Certainly they're very referential of each other. A bit meandering, definitely introspective. Right. So, this starts with Hellblazer issue 34, The Boogeyman, written by Jamie Delano with art by Sean Phillips and colors by Tom Zawico. Sean Phillips, he is best known for Marvel Zombies. Okay. We have seen Sean Phillips on this book once before. He drew Morning of the Magician, which is the story with the ghost of Constantine's father. Oh, yeah. What he's doing on this issue really kind of reminds me of Eduardo Risso's art from 100 Bullets. Okay, I'm not familiar with that comic. He's doing a lot of really clean line characters here, but with really gritty detailed backdrops. It's an interesting effect. Comic booky characters... Really intense backdrops. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. This cover is by Kent Williams, right? Yeah, we have an end of his rope-looking John and shabby surroundings. He's reaching into a heart-shaped hole in his chest. And carved into his flesh are the words, It's inside me. I keep trying to kill it. But it just won't die. Right. Okay. So, we open on a familiar character. Mercury is staring out the window. Mercury is a little girl with psychic abilities who we saw during the Fear Machine story arc. Right, first appearance in Hellblazer number 14, and as far as I recall, her surviving the Fear Machine arc had been somewhat ambiguous up to this point. John, Mercury, Zed, and Marge were all hit by a tidal wave. Yeah, that's right, and John seemed to at least briefly lose his memory at that point. Yeah, but he was found by a ship, he was fine, we didn't really see anybody else. This is our first encounter with Mercury, and... Shortly, another character from that arc. Another two characters from that arc. Right. We did not see Mercury at all during the entire Family Man trade. Right. So she is aboard the bus, the Heart of Gold, and she knows that something bad is coming. They're kind of parked in what looks like an abandoned industrial park. Some kind of industrial or government buildings that are in really bad repair. Yeah, it seemed that way to me. They're, they're basically in a vacant lot. And she's watching these rats play in this lot, uh, feeling sort of sickness and urban blight all around. They've stayed too long. They should have moved on yesterday. Yeah, the narration, which is covering her thoughts, talks about things being in a state of flux, where maps become useless. Water changes into steam. They had to keep moving, keep finding the right people, keep unraveling the tangled threads, trying to weave the tatters into bright new cloth. So Mercury considers herself to have some sort of spiritual work to do traveling around the country with her mother Marge in this bus, finding the right kind of people and setting them on their paths. So this ominous feeling that she's having of something bad on its way, it continues. She decides to poke around outside the bus a little bit, but as soon as she steps outside of the bus, she either sees or senses something that horrifies her. She runs back inside and goes to wake up her mother Marge. Now Marge, we have been told, is not taking well to the work that they have to be doing. She's tired and lonely. And Mercury knows at some point she's going to have to leave Marge behind for her own sake, but she's not strong enough to do so yet. Right. Just as she's waking Marge up, there comes a knock at the door. Mercury warns Marge not to open it. But outside is John Constantine. Of course it's me. Who are you expecting? And we get our title page here, The Boogeyman. Right, labeling John as The Boogeyman. <laughs> Also worth noting that John has a large bottle of liquor stuffed in one pocket. Not a long walk to assume he's a bit soused. Yeah, this isn't the dapper John that we sometimes get. This is the very disheveled, worse-for-wear John that we just as often get. So, John's coughing and hacking. He tries to give Mercury a kiss and she refuses because he's sick and he stinks. Wasted is the word. He should know better. Yeah, it seems kind of like he's intentionally trolling her here. He has a scary-looking speech balloon here, and kind of is doing like a, a spooky voice, I get the impression. Oh. When he says, 
Hello, my lovely. How about a nice big welcome kiss for your old pal, John? <laughs> Hello, Mercury. Joker's here. <laughs> Mercury says here that he's poisoned himself. Unclear if she's just talking about the booze. And she senses he did something bad. He mentions he tried suicide once, but she says it's something involving fathers and a gun. Yeah, is she talking about his use of a gun to kill the family man a couple of issues ago? Right, so the implication is that at least one of the things that's messing him up is having sort of gotten his father killed in the family man affair and then murdering the family man. Right. She tries to look into his mind, but he won't let her. She calls him a coward. Marge keeps trying to haul Constantine into this bus. Mercury keeps trying to send him off. She says there's something eating him, and she doesn't want Marge getting it, too. He's dangerous, Marge. There's something black and furious eating at him. You're too vulnerable. He's not good for you. But Marge thinks that Mercury's just jealous that John came to her instead of to St. Bloody Mercury. Mercury says he doesn't want to be close to anyone. He doesn't want comfort. He just wants someone to hurt. When Marge puts her foot down and says that she's an adult and she knows what she's doing... Mercury runs off. Upon being admitted to the bus, John basically confirms what Mercury was saying. I'm a plague ship, Marge. You should tell me to sling me hook. I want to point something out here. Did it occur to you that John's coughing fits and the idea of something black eating at him might be a reference forward to dangerous habits? Oh, yeah, that's very possible as well. I did sort of get a sense that we were coming up on dangerous habits from this little run of issues. There's a couple of panels here as Marge is trying to serve John some tea where he's obviously ogling her slightly open robe and she pulls it shut with a scowl. So how did you find us, Marge asks. It turns out that John ran into an old friend, Errol, also a character from the Fear Machine arc. They were at a poll tax riot in London. Yeah, and we'll talk more about the poll tax in the show notes. Now, Errol is the guy who calls everything the bollocks, right? Yes, that's right. One of John's good friends from the hippie commune that he was living in in the Fear Machine, and he has zero written across his head. Yeah, has he always had that zero tattoo across his head? As far as I know. Okay. So that's not new. So John's standing around the poll tax riot, kind of out of it, and about to be hit by an armored car that he doesn't see. Where do you think you are, man? Tiananmen Square? Yeah, Errol pulls John out of the way and, and just has time to tell him where to find Marge and Mercury and to give him the bottle of scotch before the police charge again and he's back into the fray. Now, the Tiananmen Square line is referring to the Tiananmen Square massacre of June 4th, 1989, when the People's Liberation Army killed student protesters in China, including some who were crushed by tanks. That's specifically the reference he's making. Yeah, there's a very famous image from Tiananmen Square of the protesters standing in front of the tanks in defiance. Back in the bus now, John is saying he's lost it, and Marge is trying to get him into the shower. Lost what, John? You name it. Function, purpose, reason, faith, everything. Here he's singing the sea shanty, the maid of Amsterdam. The song goes, I'll go no more a-roving with you, fair maid, but he's singing a-raving instead, because he's raving about how messed up he is. Yeah, he's definitely rambling pretty incoherently on this issue. No, Marge, you can't stop. Never stop moving. Never look back. It's death if you do. And as he says never to look back, he starts looking back on his childhood. Right. This is sort of mirroring Mercury's thoughts about perpetual motion. He's talking about jumping from rock to rock on a beach and how you have to keep moving continuously forward in order to not lose your balance and fall. Never stop moving. That's the trick. Never let memory step on your shadow. But he does eventually tumble down into the dark, wet cracks with the crowd legs, the sand ticks, and the cold, wet jelly things. John has made it into the shower now, but he collapses in the shower, and as Marge gets him up, he's begging her to make me warm, now. Don't look at me that way, John. It frightens me. Frightens you? How do you bloody think it makes me feel? It's inside me. I keep trying to kill it, but it just won't die. There's that cover line. Yes. He says he's always felt this darkness inside him. It's why he's spent his life looking into dark crevices, in the hope of finding something worse. Hell is where the heart is, babe. We also get a reference to Mercury as being the future. You should have listened to Mercury. She could feel it. She knows what's good for her. She's the future, Marge, and she wants no part of me. That will come back. 
Some distance away, Mercury is still able to sense John's turmoil. She calls him an old man looking for his death. She thought she could trust him to find his own way. She's irritated at everybody being scared and bogged down in the swamp of their own tiny needs lately. She kind of expected them to build a better community after Fear Machine, and they kind of lapsed back into their old shit. Yeah, as we discussed in the Fear Machine story arc, or maybe directly after it, they sort of had an opportunity to remake the world that they sort of squandered. Right, the world survived, but it didn't really get any better. I think this issue is kind of continuously walking a line between, like, is it John's psychological problems that are making him so dark and toxic, or is it something... Is it actually something mystical hanging over him? Or maybe both at the same time. Is he possessed by something? Or is he just a self-destructive asshole who Mercury has begun to see through? Yeah, right. There's an interesting moment here. She's staring into this fire that she's apparently built, and she thinks how John has one foot trapped in the grave of the past. I thought that was interesting because just a couple of issues ago, in Morning of the Magician, he was staring into a fire while burning something he had dug up from a grave. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I do kind of feel like John is getting a kind of undeserved thrashing here. Okay. You know, he's being blamed for all this darkness that he carries around and for the violence of his recent adventures. But he was tangling with a serial killer, you know? Yeah. That, that stuff wasn't really his fault. It feels a little unearned because of the, like, somewhat cathartic sense that we got from Morning of the Magician. Right. That he had dealt with some of the darkness that came from the Family Man affair and that he was coming out the other side of it. Right, exactly. Although, I don't know, maybe this is intended to follow directly from the kind of chaos and confusion that he felt in Sundays Are Different. Yeah, yeah. Also, this is the first time I think it's explained on panel. Marge and Zed apparently broke up after the Fear Machine. Their triangle was too intense. Specifically too intense for Marge. Right. So Mercury smells a familiar smell, which causes her to remember a boy from school. From some point in her life when she was going to school, apparently. And he would uh, gather people around the toilet to show off his shits. Yeah. Mercury thinks to herself... Marge, Marge, don't let him near you. Don't let him sleep with you. He'll poison you. She also thinks of him as a grubby, spiteful boy. Again, I don't think that this is quite a fair comparison. You know, the kid who ushers other people into the bathroom to show him his shit is clearly a little worse than Constantine turning to friends in a time of psychological distress. Right. There's another analogy that she makes here as she describes that boy's mother and how all the other mothers would gather around her at the school gate because she always had fresh bruises. So she kind of sees Marge as the abuse victim in this analogy. Yeah. There's something else I want to mention here. It talks about her being frustrated with John because he doesn't seem to understand how important he is. We don't quite know what that means yet. So back in the bus, Marge says she doesn't really know how to help him. John says she does, but she doesn't want to do it. Trolling for sex. Is it trolling? Can you use both? Uh, huh. I guess trawling sounds a little bit more precise to me. Plus, it's nautical terminology, which is great. <laughs> he goes on and on here about the various problems in the world, which does tie into the last issue, Sundays Are Different, which kind of suggested that he was unable to tune out the various miseries in the world. At least not for more than half a day or so. He talks about Amazonian genocides and Victorian pressure cookers. It's really a lot of rambling. <laughs> he also mentions here the 1990 riot at Strangeways Prison. Which would have been quite recent. So, with all this awfulness in the world, John feels helpless. Marge says it's not his fault, but John says it is. Helpless. Bastard helpless. That's how I feel. There's too much to do and nothing to be done. John, John, don't be so arrogant. Just because you can't make it all all right at once doesn't mean it's your fault. But it is, don't you see? Mine and all the other boogeymen. So... That's interesting, because when he starts talking about himself as a boogeyman, it kind of lends weight to the theory that he's actually literally possessed by something. Okay. And that's what's setting all this into motion. But at the same time, he's not 
discussing it as a sort of mystical thing. He's just talking about it as like, you know, he feels this responsibility to the world that the world is a mess and he's not doing enough to fix it. Right, and he's sort of characterizing himself as one of the bad guys here. And he goes on to tell a story about how that came to be. Last week, he was in Amsterdam. He was investigating a new designer drug called Death. Now, at first I thought, oh, good job, John, trying to stem the spread of a new designer drug. <laughs> right. No, thought it might be just what I needed. Yeah, yeah, he's looking to take some and get high. So this contact takes John to a sex shop, or brothel of some kind, and while the contact is trying to buy John drugs, he's watching the girl through the window, and he sees his own reflection in the window. A grubby, seedy boogeyman with glinty eyes. So basically he just he caught a glimpse of his own reflection and realized that he's a grubby old pervert. <laughs> a grub reasonably young pervert, actually. I suppose that's right. Marge wants him to talk about what he's feeling. She wants him to open up, but when he does, she quickly becomes overwhelmed, tries to change the subject or give him something to make him feel better. I see, the old chemical cosh, is it? Sorry, Mum. Thought you wanted to know how I felt. Thought you wanted me to talk. Don't you want to hear about the dead boy's heart? That's a title drop, too, but it's the title drop of the next issue. Yeah. I thought I loved you, John, but I don't know who you are. You seem lost, deep inside yourself. I'd like to be close, like the way we were before, but you keep trying to freak me out, to drive me away. I think there's some truth to what Marge is saying here. Again, I've already characterized John's dialogue throughout this issue as kind of a ramble. I think that Marge is also kind of correct that he's pouring it on a bit thick. Right. He's in a bad spot, but he's also trolling them a little bit with how bad a spot it is. Not to be confused with trolling. Right. Well, he's trolling for sympathy. And sex. Yeah. But also trolling. Just making an arse of himself is what it is. <laughs> yes. John says, I'm sorry, Marge, but just hold me, please. I'm so scared. And I think at that point we can infer that they've gone to bed as we find Mercury clutching her ears trying to keep them out, even though it's not really as though she can hear them. Yeah, she can't stop herself from reading their minds, and so she psychically witnesses the moment where Marge gives in and the two of them go to bed together. And it seems like at this point she also can't stop the intrusion of the young John from her mind any longer. And that's how... We get this creepy kid, and we transition into the story of the dead boy's heart. Yeah, I love this page, actually. She's been wearing this distinctive monkey-patterned blanket for the entire issue. In the final page, the panels break into sort of shattered glass shapes, while behind it, this creepy child Constantine with his big grin is grabbing the blanket to pull her into the dream. Which brings us to Hellblazer number 35. Dead Boy's Heart. This is once again written by Jamie Delano with art by Phillips and colors by Zuiko. The cover is by Kent Williams. We have a heart in the forehead of a child John who's in a portrait, which is in a heart. Yeah, and this larger heart that everything else is within kind of looks almost like an anatomically correct heart or a misshapen heart icon at least. Right. Not the classical heart design of the one that's on John's forehead here. Right. So we open on little plastic figurines. There's what we might call a Native American, what John would probably call an Indian, begging for mercy from a pirate captain, but no luck, as he is consigned to the deeps of this aquarium. And this is a pretty cool composition. Little John, 10 or 12 years old, looking through the window of the aquarium. And the top of the aquarium is the top of the page. The Indian falls down into the page. Yeah, it looks like there's a ruler or something, and the pirate is making the Indian walk the plank. No, wretch, there is no pity in Captain Death. So, young John Constantine was perhaps a, an ugly little character. He's wandering around the house now, wondering how many heartbeats you would survive after walking the plank, and counting his own heartbeats. Oh, it's after walking the plank, okay. I didn't get that. I just thought it was like, how long could you survive if your heart was beating really fast? <laughs> like, I wrote in my notes, how long could you live if heart beating? <laughs> oh, man. That's... <laughs> oh, she's listening to the radio. I thought she was singing. That's fine. No, yeah, it's Johnny Remember Me by John Layton is playing over the radio, which is sort of a ghost story song. 
Interesting. John finds Cheryl, his sister, and she's kissing the mirror here as he comes up. John, you scary little bugger, you frit the life out of me. I want to note here that he refers to her as our Cheryl. But there's a lot of our. And later on she calls him our John, which I don't know what that is, but it's kind of funny. Obviously the common usage here. Cheryl tells him to go outside and play, but he says he won't. He has no friends here. They're not in Liverpool, where they were born, where Tom Constantine lived until he died. They are being taken care of by their Aunt Dolly until their father's trouble is sorted. Yeah, it seems like he maybe he didn't live in Liverpool until he died, because for a while he lived in prison. Yeah, right, and we'll find out more about that in a little bit. Cheryl offers John a shilling to go outside just for a couple hours. Here she's looking at the calendar, and John starts holding forth on upside-down years. Years that are the same upside-down? Yeah, yeah, and he yeah. starts doing math on the window. So John's a bit of an introvert, bit of a nerd at this point in his life. Yeah, maybe a kind of would-be bully of a nerd. <laughs> Fair enough. He says that he knows she's just getting rid of him so Ron Simons can come over, but he consents to go outside. The offer that gets rid of him is a shilling and two Mars bars, or a smacked head. All right, but you'll be sorry if I get eaten by the boogeyman and never come back. That's a last issue title drop. That's right. There is a boogeyman here as well. So John goes down to this abandoned quarry. It's off limits, but it's also the only interesting place in this little village. He talks about how the old machinery looks like robot dinosaurs. I thought that was pretty cool. He's a very imaginative kid. The kids say that this old quarry, which is full of water, is bottomless, and it's guarded by a boogeyman. And he looks down from up the hill onto the boogeyman's little tin shack. Yeah, with the boogeyman guarding it, it's dangerous, but he, he thinks a good tracker could get by. Uncas could do it. That would be Uncas, the title character from The Last of the Mohicans. Right. He also makes reference here to the village kids rattling the hut with stones. That will become important. Yeah, that's a thing that happens. And he is dressed up. He has dressed himself up with a little bit of his sister's lipstick on his cheeks and a headband with a feather in it. He's kind of in a stereotypical Native American costume. Kind of doing Uncas cosplay or attempting to. Right, yeah, kind of pretending to be Uncas. And I did think it was interesting that, you know, we see him here dressed like this, and very quickly he becomes accosted by bullies. And in a way, he has dressed himself up as the victim in his previous play. That's right. He was sort of playing himself as the pirate, as Captain Death. Now he's the Indian who had to walk the plank. Right. Yeah, and I'm amused by this as he notices the older boys coming up. Shit, Blackfoot War Party. <laughs> Right. Okay, so these guys waste no time in pointing out that John hasn't got a mum and his dad is locked up for stealing scanties off a washing line. Yeah, this is sort of racially problematic here. They use the word wogging. Oh, okay. To mean stealing. And wogging is, as I understand it, a slur for non-white people. So to use it as a synonym for stealing, which might have also been common slang, is sort of implying that, you know... Yeah, yeah. ...that people of color steal. So, yeah, pretty racist there. Not a good term to use. They tell him that they heard all of this personal information from his Uncle Harry, who told their dad in the pub. John, at this point, wants to join their gang, but they think he doesn't have the guts. Well, they also say we don't want no mucky scousers. A scouser is a person from Liverpool. Which he is. Yeah, right, right. One asks, ever killed a slimy eel with your teeth? And another says, ever touched a girl's thing? <laughs> yeah, so they're setting a certain bar for courage there. <laughs> right, right. What a cool gang. They just eat eels and make out with girls. <laughs> that's their modus operandi. Well, no, but it's, they think they're the hottest shit in town. But that's their definition of something so brave nobody's done it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So to prove himself, they tell him he's got to sneak up to the boogeyman's shack and steal one of his dirty mags from the pile in the back. Yeah, and for steal, they use the same objectionable term that I talked about before. Jerks! Yeah, they're being a bunch of real hair stars. And they will continue to be. Now, using extreme stealth, Constantine gets up to the back of the shack, 
It is not clear to me whether he's really good at stealth or if he's just doing what he's seen in movies. It seems to be working. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. He's little and it's easy for little people to be quiet, so I bet he'd be pretty stealthy. I bet he'd do a decent job. He gets to the back of the hut and pulls this sort of tent flap aside and reaches for the dirty mags. And then treachery. Betrayal. These older boys start throwing rocks at the roof of the shack, making a great big calamitous noise. Yeah, they slipped one past the sensors here because when the boogeyman comes out of the shack, and you'll notice that his coat is tied with a piece of rope rather than a belt, he says, Why don't you fucking kids leave me alone? And by spelling it with two G's and putting it in the middle of a string of words, they seem to have managed to effectively slip an F word past the sensors. I thought this was a cool little detail because it seems like his speech is incomprehensible to the kids, but we can read it as just heavily slurred English. Yeah. They think he's some kind of monster. We can tell that he's just annoyed that they're throwing rocks at his house. Well, specifically, Constantine thinks he's Captain Death. No pity in his eyes. So do you want to talk about what, what happens next? Well, John is running from the boogeyman. Yep, he sure is. He finds a bunch of the boogeyman's shits in the woods under old dirty mags. Yeah, I... making double use of the dirty mags there. I thought that was an interesting arrangement. You poop and you cover it with the dirty magazine page. Limited resources. I guess, I guess. I, I mean, maybe he just doesn't want to step in them. So when he shits in the woods, he marks it. Yeah. Anyway, so this is creepy. The hobo, the old man, the boogeyman entreats John to come out. He says, I don't want to hurt you. I just want to show you a secret. Hmm. Gross. Yeah. Yeah, John has been told, incidentally, that if he's caught by the boogeyman, he will be killed. He's hiding in the woods here, counting his heartbeats to time how long he's been waiting. A thousand, and he keeps hiding. And that's when he finds something. Some bone. Perhaps it's a fossil, a dinosaur, or a pilot crashed in the war. Careful, brush the earth away gently. Do it properly, like an archaeologist. Maybe it's the missing link. He finds what he believes to be the skeleton of a boy here. It's a dead boy, drowned and buried by the boogeyman, just like the village kids said. And he finds something shiny in the chest. A red rock, sort of carved or drawn with veins all over it. Jesus, it's a fossil of a dead boy's heart. So after 6,000 beats, John finally moves. He's sort of disrespectful here if this really is a piece of a dead human. He refers to it as a warrior's gift and decides that he's going to keep it with him as a token of luck. Now, I am not anatomist enough to tell you what that is the skeleton of, but I certainly read the story as implying that the dead boy's heart was nothing of the kind, just an interesting-looking rock he found. Yeah, it could be. I thought maybe it was fossilized human or animal flesh of some kind, but mm. I don't know. Okay. It's not really made super clear, and there's more ambiguity about it that we'll talk about later. Okay. He puts the dead boy's heart in his chest pocket and he runs away. He runs into the older boys again, who are now... They have found a cat and are planning to torture it. Yeah. He sneaks away from them, and he bumps into a man and woman in the throes, or about to be. Got a moment of perhaps uncharacteristic bravery here, as he thinks she's in some kind of trouble, and he says, Leave her alone. Yeah, it's... It's kind of hard to tell whether what's going on between these two is consensual or not. Certainly she's complaining that he's being too rough. Mm -hmm. But when John intervenes, she starts to kind of get gross about the whole thing, saying that she wants to carry on with him watching. Mm. So a couple of unsavory characters there. Yeah, they seem to be all over the place. This is not a sparsely populated little town. We're going to keep running into this theme throughout the issue, too, of John running into basically sexual situations and not really knowing what they are yet. Yeah, and it seems like this encounter shakes him up a lot because what happens next is the bullies find him bawling his eyes out. So the older boys spot something in his shirt and they think it's a nudie mag and they try to take it away. He does have a nudie mag, right? I guess he has successfully stole one, although it's a pretty gross one. Yeah, <laughs> They talk about how there's a cat with its throat cut in there, which is really right up these guys' alley. But they complain that you don't see enough of that in British pornography, so it must be foreign. Right. They try to steal the dead boy's heart from him, but he clouts the biggest one on the head with the stone. Stay back. Uncas kill Blackfeet. He's barmy, isn't he? 
probably got rabies. Let him go. And as he runs off, they chant, Mad Boy! After him. Yeah, which is a callback to what Mercury sensed way back at the beginning of the last issue. A mad boy hiding in its mother's skirts. Oh, shit. I missed that part. So we find Child John sleeping here under his own patterned blanket. This is a different pattern. I checked. And thinking how everyone's a shitbag. Yeah. And he's kind of got a point. It turns out that Cheryl told Aunt Dolly that he had left home without permission. And he ended up getting a beating for it. Yeah, so he's hurting all over from the fights with the bullies and from the belting Uncle Harry gave him. He's thinking how Uncle Harry is a sadist. And he's clutching the dead boy's heart. Yeah, and again, we get some evidence that he's right. Because he overhears... What sounds like a fairly ugly sexual encounter, possibly a sexual assault, between his Uncle Harry and his Aunt Dolly in the next room. Yeah, we see him here kind of holding the heart over his chest and over his head, almost like a kind of balm. Yeah, he performs a little ritual with it of his own devisement, where he holds it over various bruised or hurting areas to heal them. Yeah, so he wakes up sometime later. He finds... Dolly apparently trying to get herself free of having been tied up with a belt. Maybe she lets him hurt her, like him in the woods? Maybe that's what you're supposed to do. Maybe Cheryl knows. Just deeply confused about what he's seeing, and understandably so. The next morning he starts talking with Aunt Dolly, and he asks if it's true that his father's in prison for nicking ladies' smalls. Yes, she says sometimes your Uncle Harry lets his tongue run away with him. Yeah, because it turns out that the village kids got it from one of their fathers, who got it from Uncle Harry. And I like this. John thinks it was silly to go to prison for stealing something so cheap. <laughs> right. Our dad's not stupid. If he was going to steal something, it'd be more valuable than old knickers. Men do some strange things in this world, boy. Things only God and them understand. Maybe you'll see clearer when you grow up. You'll be one of them then, poor little sod. I won't. I'm not going to grow up. I'm going to stay here with you. He shows her the stone and says that it's useful for taking away her bruises. Uh, she retorts that she hasn't got any bruises and tells him to get rid of it. Right. Get rid of that dirty stone. It'll have diseases. Yeah, I'm with Aunt Dolly on this one. I <laughs> I think the stone is pretty gross. <laughs> if it's a fossilized heart or whatever it is. John wonders about the dead boy, how many times his heart beat, how long the boogeyman kept him alive before killing him. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he'll do more hell math on the mirror later. He's <laughs> he's hanging around with Cheryl here, who's, I guess, putting the washing on the line. And Cheryl apologizes for telling on him last night. Sorry I got you in trouble yesterday. It's Uncle Harry. He frits me. He's so creepy. He's not as bad as the boogeyman. So John is making something out of junk here. She asks if it's a castle. He says it's a prison. Yeah, and again, we sort of see the ugly side here as he's showing her his collection of bugs how he lets them out in the yard for exercise, but if they start to get away, he executes them with the dead boy's heart and crushes them. He says that it's gaining power the more executions he carries out with it. Fuck! Yeah. Fucking chill out, little John. Yeah. That's kind of messed up, and we're learning a little bit about John's childhood here. Mm-hmm. Cheryl threatens him that he'd better let them all go, or she'll tell on him. But he says that he'll tell how she's doing stuff with Ron. It's not true, but Harry will believe him because he's a boy. Want to see me kill some more? I hate you. I don't care. Everybody does. Yeah, I think that's a kind of window into how antisocial the young John is mm -hmm. and how, like, really deeply isolated he is as well. Yeah. You know, he has no one around him that's not hostile to him in one way or another. So he's squashing more bugs here, and he crushes his own finger with the dead boy's heart. Well, that pretty much spoils the whole game for him. Yeah, and it looks like he drops a drop of blood onto the heart. He talks about how the heart, as he's carried out more executions, has become warmer and heavier. So I, I think this is where it sort of becomes ambiguous as to whether or not there really is some kind of magic going on here, if this is some kind of cursed artifact. He decides at this point that the heart is evil and he shouldn't have taken it. The dead boy could come looking for it. And he starts to push some of his own unpleasant feelings onto the heart as well. Stop it. It's cursed. It's making you do bad things. Get rid of it. Take it back. He heads back to the quarry all the time, narrating. 
Get rid of it before the boogeyman finds out it's gone and comes to get it back, and tells you the secret you don't want to know. He takes it to the quarry and heaves it as hard as he can. But his hand is sweaty, and he doesn't get quite as good of a throw as he was hoping for. Crying! He hits the roof of the little shack. And when this does not result in the boogeyman coming out, he concludes that he must have killed him with the throw. Tin roof, the sound. Oh, Jesus, it went straight through. It hit him, split his skull. His brains have splashed out and blood all down his face like porridge and jam. He's dead. Must be. I've killed the boogeyman. So John runs home, knowing that he will probably be caught and executed for murder. Even if there's no evidence, they'll see it in his eyes. He thinks about telling Cheryl, but he decides he can never tell a living soul. It's the boogeyman's secret. It's the awful, lonely secret of the dead boy's heart, and you must keep it to your grave. He's standing here looking in the picture window at Dolly, Harry, and Cheryl inside the house. But the very worst thing is, once you know it, you're a boogeyman too. So that was kind of an interesting episode from John's childhood. We learn, as you said, that he was kind of an ugly character as a kid, but also something of the the isolation and hostility that drove him to that. Yeah, and this is sort of set up as, like, this is showing the origin of how he became a boogeyman. Now, because we don't know how magical these goings-on are, we don't know how literally to take that. Mm -hmm. Is he actually possessed by something as a result of this cursed artifact that he found when he was a kid? Or is it just that he's psychologically troubled and has been since his childhood? Right, yeah. I certainly read it primarily as a psychological story. And for my part, I mean, I don't think that it's very likely that that throw killed the boogeyman. Oh, no, I don't think so either. Right, he just... He takes a lot of guilt on because he misread the situation. Right. But also his relationship with the dead boy's heart kind of reflects what he was saying in the last issue, that he uh, looks for ugliness in the world to find it without himself. Much the way that he blamed the heart for his own, his own cruelty. One other thing I wanted to mention, we've talked before, or I've said before, about how a lot of the times it seems like John is the only one written with a British accent, and everyone else is written kind of neutral. Uh-huh. This issue, everyone was British. <laughs> everyone was full-time British in this issue. So, hey, all right, the studio shelled out for some extra accents. <laughs> <laughs> so that brings us to Hellblazer number 36, The Undiscovered Country. This would have been exactly one year before the Star Trek movie. Oh, okay. So, coincidence. Yeah. The line is from the to-be-or-not-to-be speech from Hamlet. Mm -hmm. And the cover here is... This is another Kent Williams, right? I have written same credits. There's a framed portrait of John's face, but it seems to be emerging from an old man's face. Like I this, just wrote weird head. Like this. <laughs> You're probably right that that's what like it's This old to guy's end. face is basically Terrence and Philip, and it's opening all the way, and John's face is coming out of it. Sure you're right. Back in the present day, we have Mercury looking in the bus window at Marge and John in bed together. She wonders now if Marge was right, if she was jealous. Can she be jealous of that grunting, sweaty, weary need? No. These are still his thoughts that she's infected with. Aren't they? Yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> um, John right. notices her peeking and lights a cigarette. He continues the Hamlet soliloquy. To sleep, perchance, a bloody dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come. Yeah, and then, you said it, Will. Still, tomorrow is another day. You probably said that as well. Or was it King Pleasure? King Pleasure was an American jazz vocalist. Oh, okay. King Pleasure. You want a record that's going to make you feel good. You can't do better than King Pleasure. He's the <laughs> king of pleasure. <laughs> elected. <laughs> He's the elected king of... He was voted... 10,000, 100,000 King Pleasure fans can't be wrong. <laughs> Nine out of ten dentists for King Pleasure. <laughs> so he goes looking for Mercury, and when he finds her, she asks, Had your boil squeezed then? John insults her back and tries to carry her back to the bus to hash it out over coffee. Ah, you could say that, yeah. If you were a scummy-minded little viper with a poisoned tongue, that is. I'll catch your death out here, John says. She says it's not her death she's concerned about. It's the pile of corpses around John attracting hellhounds. He thinks she's poetically overreacting. Yeah, again, this seems kind of unfair to me. A bunch of people have died around John, mostly because he was tangling with a serial killer. That's <laughs> in his recent adventures. 
And I guess also a dangerous devil dog. Yeah, well, we know that hellhounds are literally chasing John. Like, the powers of hell want him to be there. Because of Nurgle, right? Right, because of Nurgle and Astra and Newcastle. Newcastle. Yeah, but I don't know if she's referring to those hellhounds or just to sort of metaphorical hellhounds of fear caused by his own issues. He says that she's too young to put everything she's seen in perspective. You've got blind spots. You need a broader experience to understand what makes people who they are, how the patterns of the past inform the future. No, I don't. Patterns are the bloody trouble. They're what's messed you up, aren't they? You're not doing anything new. You're stuck in a loop, repeating all the worn-out lines and moves, like someone in a TV soap. Ooh, that's harsh. Predictable and badly written. <laughs> Do you think Jamie Delano is kind of criticizing his own writing here? <laughs> I didn't think of it that way. She's basically playing on this broken brick wall with their blanket out behind her like a cape. I just wanted to point that out because it's kind of cool. Remember, they live in a world where Superman is canonically real. That's true, but they don't talk about it very much. No. He says she wants to save the world, but she doesn't know what it is yet. She scoffs at that. She says she's seen everything already. World's full of people with glass heads, John. She says he has no enigmatic charm for her. She can see through to the scared child any time. I can see everything. Not everything, you can't. Everything important. I can see the baby who killed his brother and his mother and nursed his guilt into a monster he couldn't kill. I can see the youth who doomed his friends by leading them too close to the edge of his madness. And I can see the man who killed his father with a careless word, then tried to drown his guilt in the spilled blood of revenge. I never had a brother. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Here's another one. John's responsibility for his father's death is much spottier than either Merc or the family man described it. I mean, he had a peaceful interaction with the family man, during which he did not mention his father, I checked. Family man declared war on him spontaneously after ignoring him for some weeks, and then found out his father's address from a police detective. Right. Yeah, no careless word there. Yeah, again, John is just really getting a bunch of crap piled on him here, even more than what he's done to deserve it. I really liked in the first Hellblazer story arc, Hunger, mm -hmm. how we really see him being kind of a bastard in order to solve a greater problem. Right. I don't know if we really saw that with the family man, which makes all this fallout kind of feel unjustified. Well, the family man was supposed to be the first time that he had killed a person. I mean, he had a pretty big hand in what happened to Gary back in the first couple of issues. Right. And as well, of course, there's his involvement in Astra going to hell. But if you read the family man as like his first murder, his first killing, then it's not that surprising that it sort of sunders the soul a bit. I would point out the family man actually pulled the trigger, but okay. Oh, that's a good point. So Mercury asks him who the boogeyman is, who scares him the most. He's, he, this, this story arc is all about him being held to account for things he never actually had any control over. It's very Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> he says she scares him the most, and she says no, it's what she represents, the future. Now that you've pushed it to the very brink, you want to give up. You're too afraid to jump and too afraid to stay. You've got hell right behind you and freedom in front. You're caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. And she throws a rock at him. Or a brick. Yeah, bounces a brick off his head. What the hell, man? <laughs> That's one way to stop reading people's thoughts. <laughs> Seriously. Come on in, the water's lovely, she concludes. He yells at her for peeking into his affairs. And she reminds him that he sicked up your scuzzy nightmares all over me. No, you poked your nose in and got a fright. Now you've decided I'm a destructive, cowardly bastard, responsible for everything from the rape of the planet to the poll tax. You said that, not me. I said you were paralyzed by your fear of death and hell's revenge. He says that he's got a right to be terrified. She says she's only angry because she cares. She says hell doesn't exist unless you live your life miserably. It bloody does. I've been there. She says death is a painless moment between lives and she can prove it. Like she did with the Scaredies. She can put his fear in perspective. Just a peek at death. Now just for a recap, the Scaredies were people who the government had taken in and was basically harvesting fear from to build a fear monster, and they were using Mercury to do that, pulling the fear out of them. Right. She didn't realize that that's what she was doing. She thought she was just providing therapy for them. Right, just relieving them of their fears. This is stepping back a little bit, but I want to point out, we get a second reference to how important John is. She says, can't you get it through your stupid head? We need you here. 
Okay, so Mercury grabs John's soul out of his head. Just grabs his head and pulls his soul right out. Good party trick. <laughs> and they go flying into this Escher landscape. What is this place? Looks like some kind of mad prison or asylum or maze, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You're supposed to be in control. But it's your crazy fantasy that built it. Don't you recognize it? Yeah, it's familiar from dreams. Projections of the subconscious, I suppose. Architecture, the imagination. So she's supposed to be in control of the experience, but she's not shaping the architecture of John's dreams. They're still in his head. Basically, she's Ariadne and he's Cobb. Inception. Okay, gotcha. Oh, I do want to point out in this panel that Mercury is looking at a big, scary black bird gargoyle that rather resembles the Maltese falcon statue from Jerry's house that the family man's trivia was hidden under. Oh, is that what she's pointing at when she says, what's down there, and he says, you don't want to know? That's a little bit later. There seems to be a great big cage, or maybe it's a tiny cage. Anyway, the cage is far too small for the human skeleton that's in it. Yeah, I thought that that was his sort of dream representation of Gary who, remember, he left to waste away in a in a cage. Right, yeah, Gary was put into basically a prison cell that was bricked up after the incident with Nemoff. So it's a crazy Escher landscape of nightmares, and they encounter several different deaths represented by different tarot decks. Right, so he has to open one of these doors, and each of the doors is the death card from a different tarot deck. Pick the card you feel the most sympathy with. That'll show you the death most likely to result from your life so far. And he chooses the death from the Thoth deck designed by Alistair Crowley. Huh, predictable. Aren't you coming? No, I'll go back and guard your body. Everyone has to face death on their own. But you said... Go on. We find John, an old man, in a shabby old house in the dark. And outside the house there are hounds baying for him. The floor of this house is flooded and he looks out the window to see the rest of the world is flooded too. There's nowhere left to run. Yeah, and with the hellhounds after him, he says once again that he's caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. He's apparently dying of a fever. He looks out at the moon and says, Always like the full moon. Reminds me of Mercury. She must be about 60 now, an old woman. Hope she's made a better life than me. Yeah, he's thinking he wishes he had somebody to say goodbye to. He's dying, and he's all alone. Now... We find ourselves in another scene here. I believe this is supposed to be a flashback that leads up to the flooded house. It's the future, but it's a flashback to the future. Right. When were you born, Brother Constantine? 1953. That makes you nearly 80 years old. No, <coughs> kidding. You were fully grown before devolution and depopulation. Your childhood was in the mad days. You must have eaten flesh as a boy. He's in what looks to be an old church, and he's talking to some sort of nurse. I guess this is sort of a rest home of some kind? Which yeah, is... it's some kind of communal living arrangement, as we'll find out. Right. John says she has two minutes to make her point before he lights his cigar, which she tells him is a criminally antisocial act. But according to the reports of your former integration counselors, a typical one. He's been here at this community, which is called Greenhill, for 20 years, and there are constant complaints against him that he's antisocial and sexist. He says he agrees he's a troublesome nonconformist, but he doesn't believe sitting in a pyramid will cure lung cancer. Yeah, I wrote here that the apron lady has seen his permanent record. <laughs> it's worth noting, that despite being called Green Hill, that all the pages of John's death are in a very deep blue. Good point. Deep it's, sea blue, if you will. It's interesting to me that John, who's usually pretty politically liberal, sees the future as sort of a hyper-liberal hellhole. I guess that's maybe ties back to his conversations with Destructo a couple of issues ago, you know? He sees the world as full of problems, but he doesn't think that hippieism or fashionable activism will help. Right. Now, apparently the commune that he lives in has judged him and found him wanting. They vigorously recommend that he accepts the peace of the planet. Right. He's apparently been corrupting the youth by telling them philosophically retrograde nursery rhymes. I thought that was a funny line. I'm sure the psychoses won't be permanent. She says he's too dangerous even to serve as a warning, so they're basically suggesting that he take assisted suicide. Just suggesting, though. They won't coerce him. There will be music of your choice to soothe you, volunteers to please you sexually, and as you rest, organic toxins will free your soul into the life pool. Finally, your body will be reduced to nutrients to feed the earth, so that you may have memorial in the sustenance of those who follow. What do you say? You must be sodden joking. So John's not having that, and he decides to go outside the safe zone. We 
have noticed from the roof of this church castle thing that there's this big spiked wall a few hundred feet away from it. There will be bandits. Savage animals. It's bad outside. I've been outside all my life. I'll manage. Where will you go? To the coast, I think. I hear it's much nearer than it used to be. Good luck. Peace be with you. Ah, shut up, you sanctimonious bunch of wankers. And he takes off in a little rickshaw pulled by a dog. And the dog's name is Cerberus, just like Jerry's dog. Both of them, actually. Oh, right. So, okay, so that's how he came to this ruined house on the coast. Yeah, and now he thinks that Mercury's coming to rescue him. He can't remember if it's true or a dream. Although, if it's a dream, it's a dream he had within a death vision that he had within a dream space. Hmm, true. Yeah, maybe he's not 100% clear right now that he's still in that vision. And he remembers the events of yesterday. Oh, could be. He remembers them more strongly than he should, because he's not really 80. In any case, he believes that there's a boat of hippie travelers coming to rescue him. And he decides to try and make for the end of the pier. Or actually, I guess it's just a highway that kind of submerges. Yeah, there's this sea out in front of him from which skyscrapers are rising, and a, basically a highway leading down into it. He starts to head down it, noting that the dogs have gone, but pretty much as soon as he's got nowhere left to run, the dogs appear behind him, blocking the way back. And he is now literally between the devil, the hellhounds, and the deep blue sea. John realizes he was wrong. Give me another chance, please. Let me go with them. But he climbs up onto the railing of the bridge and steps off into the water. And this is the terror, isn't it? The helplessness, the flood that all men fear, the smell of the unconscious breaking over our heads, drowning us in the salt waves of empty regret, hopelessly grasping at straws which have no substance to support us. We are sunk by the weight of our obsessions. Dragged down as sharks of guilt swim up from the drowned world of memory and before to tear at us. Sharks of guilt! Sharks of guilt. Yeah, we see these sharks come up and... We don't really see them take a bite out of John, just him sinking and sharks swimming toward him. What do you think? Pretty good drawing of a shark? Oh yeah, the art's not bad at all. The writing is purple as hell. <laughs> How long can you hold your breath, John wonders, hearkening back to the childhood game of Walk the Plank, before you breathe the fatal air of the undiscovered country and taste if those who went before you remember you? More self-referentialness. Back in the real world, Marge is doing John's tarot. Yeah, she's trying to figure him out, trying to figure out what his blockage is. He's not actually there, but that doesn't prevent Marge from lecturing him. <laughs> he For wants to be a paternal wise man and teacher, but subconsciously craves pure unsymbolic sex. Creative male force blocked by greed for secret knowledge? Poor old John, looks like that devil card's got him in a stranglehold. And that's when she hears the cry for help from Mercury. She makes her way outside and sees that John has stopped breathing. I think I've killed him, Mercury says. He's turning blue. Right, he's got his hands wrapped around his own throat here. Marge manages to get his hands off his throat, tilt his head back, open his airway. She's doing CPR here as Mercury begs for John not to die. I just wanted to show him. Oh, please, I'll do anything. I'll go instead. I don't want to be a murderer. John suddenly revives and grabs Marge by the throat. No, John, don't hurt her. It was me that did it. Please let her go. She brought you back. It was me that killed you. Hmm. Now why would you want to do a thing like that? I thought you liked me. He's let go of Marge now and is uh, embracing her, and he puts a finger over Mercury's mouth to shush her. No, tell me later. Never tackle postmortems before breakfast. That's what I always say. Uh, huh. Okay. So, of all the issues of Hellblazer that I've read... That was definitely one of them. <laughs> now, what was it you said to me about this little story arc before we got started? What did I say? You said it didn't have a plot. <laughs> well, yeah. I guess the plot is just that John has a lot of psychological baggage. There's really a lot of meaningless rambling and purple crows and psychobabble in these three issues. The middle one I thought was the best where we see a real-life spooky story from John's past. Yeah, and a self-contained story of his childhood that tells us something about who he is. Yeah, the present-day ones, I gotta say, I didn't have a ton of use for. It seems like Jamie Delano kind of keeps coming back to this 
story, uh, the same story idea, where something semi-magical happens to put into stark relief the psychological distress that John is feeling and the and the mess that he's made of his life. But again, I just don't feel like it's super earned because he hasn't actually been that much of a bastard lately. Mm -hmm. You feel like it doesn't work when he hasn't really undergone sufficient psychological trauma or done sufficient evil stuff? Well, yeah. I mean, I can see how the family man ordeal would be psychologically stressful and even kind of guilty, you know, leave him with a lot of guilt. But I don't see why everyone else is treating him as such a mess who, such a jerk who's made a mess of his life and sows destruction wherever he goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think they're after one specific thing, which is that he did kind of, he came to them seeking comfort. They treat him as though he came only seeking sex. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether that's fair. He definitely does display seeking behavior when he's with Marge. Yeah, for he sure. He does eventually get a talking to from Mercury that seems to help him out somewhat, but it's not necessarily what he came for. Yeah. But what did you think of his vision of his death? That part was kind of interesting. You know, the glimpses of futuristic dystopia that we get. Mm -hmm. And this idea of the symbol of being caught between the devil and the deep blue sea becoming almost literally real and decides to make the plunge. Yeah, this book has had a, a spotty relationship with the idea of John in a community, and that's something we called out before, particularly in the end of The Fear Machine when, having assembled a, a large and interesting supporting cast, most of them were killed off. Yeah. The book seems to like John alone, and it's somewhat justifying that by calling him out as unwilling or unable to stay with a community for very long. Yeah, one wonders if that's out of guilt. Right. You know, he feels like he's a bastard, so... Yeah. Do you have a Constantine moment of the week? Yeah, I think my Constantine moment of the week might have to be stealing a porno mag from a hobo. <laughs> he was just a boy. <laughs> it's a, like, which major DC hero once stole a porno mag from a hobo? <laughs> That's either John Constantine or Superman. <laughs> That's some shit that Clark and Pete Ross got up to at some point. <laughs> well, no, if Superman did it, it wouldn't be when he was a kid. It would be when he was a full-grown adult. <laughs> no need for this, citizen! <laughs> now turn your life around! Straight to the Fortress of Solitude. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, what was your Constantine moment? For my Constantine moment, I have got to nominate... Volunteers to please you sexually. <laughs> oh, yeah! Even in the dystopian future, there's somebody to sleep with John Constantine. There's people volunteering to please him sexually. <laughs> oh, man, you're right. Yours is so much better than mine. <laughs> I think that's our show for the week, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Vertiguise is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show, and I handle social media. In our next Hellblazer episode, join us as John Constantine gets up to some man's work. No, I'm kidding. He's not going to do any work. <laughs> but first, join us next week as Preacher heads into the Badlands. Yeah, that's right. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertiguise.blueberry.com. B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. There's lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode there. If you want to get in touch with us, and we hope you do, you can reach us on Twitter, at Vertiguise. You can reach me on Twitter, at BlankCastSean, or you can send us an email. It's Vertiguise at gmail.com is the email address. That's right. Send us your thoughts, questions, and suggestions for Vertiguise Phase 2 coming up. We haven't mentioned this in a few episodes now, but you can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Vertiguise. You can find us on the Apple Podcasts app, where if you leave a positive review, we will give you a shout-out on the air. And by on the air, I mean on the internet. Not to mention you will help people to find the show. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. There are corners of our popular culture that think Fago is the funniest goddamn thing in the world. I grew up in Flint. I drink Fago. That's all there is to it. It's not funny. It's not it's funny. soda. <laughs> it's, it's 
not funny, it's soda. Yeah, that's exactly. There should be a t-shirt that says that. Like, it has the Fago logo and it says, not funny, it's soda. <laughs> yeah. But it's pop. It's not funny, it's pop. That's a good point. It's pop. <laughs> it's not funny, it's I'm a, pop. Because I'm a... Because I'm a poser, I pretend I'm not from fucking Michigan. Yeah. Whenever I talk about soda. Whenever you talk about soda. Uh, 